I'd encourage you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2 as uh, we work our way through the churches. Uh, we come to the church that is known because of uh, persecution. Now, I would be one of the first to tell you that persecution is not usually one of the topics you're going to hear. We don't really seem to want to talk about it very much. Uh, we'd rather uh, do a bunch of other things, you know, to talk about persecution isn't a very popular thing. Uh, but one of the things when you're preaching through the Scripture exegetically, you can't skip paragraphs that you may not like to deal with. This happens to be the next church that Jesus addresses. And we need to understand some of the things that Scripture says about persecution as we look at this text, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. According to the magazine, The Voice of the Martyrs, the time period in which we live is uh, uh, the greatest extent worldwide of persecution on the church since the first century. Now, we may not experience a lot of it right now, but there are believers throughout this world. Part of the body of Christ, brothers and sisters, you know, when God called together his people, he didn't just call them in Biloxi, Mississippi. Worldwide is the church of Jesus Christ. And there are many who are suffering because of their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. We also read in John 15 where Jesus says, the world's going to hate you. And we read in John 16, he says, you will have tribulation. Matthew chapter 5, where we have the Beatitudes, verses 10 and 11, Jesus talks about those who are blessed because they are persecuted. And Paul, in 2 Timothy 3.12 says, in this present age, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so as we talk about this, please understand, it may not be happening right here at this particular time, but we're part of a body that is worldwide, a body that is international. And if one part of the church is hurting, then the entire church hurts. Please understand that. That's important to understand. So as we deal with this church at Smyrna, please keep these things in mind. It is our privilege to be reading and studying the very Word of God, that which is inspired, that which is infallible, that which is inerrant. In Nehemiah chapter 8, when Ezra opened the book of the law, the people stood out of respect for its author. I would ask you to stand together as we read God's word this morning. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews but are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. 
Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. But be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would guide and direct us as we examine your word this morning. Uh, Lord, give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts that desire to follow Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Just as we did last time, first of all, we have to see who the speaker is, and that's critical. Because this individual is speaking to his people. He's just seeking to encourage his people. In fact, the entire book of Revelation was written to be an encouragement to God's people in the midst of persecution. So, Jesus speaks to the church and he refers to himself as the first and the last who was dead and who has come to life, says this. So that as Jesus begins his message to this church, this church that is about to go through a great time of suffering, he tells them that he is the one who is the beginning to the end. He's that all-sovereign God who's in control of all things. And so he's the one who's in charge. He's the one, Jesus goes on to say, who was dead and has come to life. And this is the picture of the beautiful finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ upon which our faith is based. It is Jesus who lived that perfect life as he had to submit himself to life. He who created the world had to become a part of it in order to live a perfect life and to die that sacrificial death. But as we all know, that's not where the story ends because three days later, what happened? He broke the bonds of death and he walked out of that tomb. So the picture of the one who is speaking is that great sovereign one who rules and reigns over all things. That one who conquered even death and is now alive ruling and reigning over all things. And he says to his church, I know. And when you think about the term that's being used here, that term talks of great intimacy. It's not like he's distant and he doesn't care what's going on. That he's totally removed from the situation and therefore is very impersonal. No, the word know here makes reference to that personal relationship. He knows what these people are about to go through. And he hurts for them. He feels what they're going to experience. He knows the tribulation that's coming. This, talks, this word talks about uh, serious trouble. You know, burdens that are almost too heavy to bear. He knows their poverty. One of the things that happened to Christians during this time was uh, oftentimes as the church grew, the Jewish merchants and the pagan merchants quit trading with them. And so they suffered economically. But ultimately, the riches that we have as believers 
is far beyond what the world can give because of the salvation that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the little parentheses, you know, on earth you have poverty, but you are rich, rich in the Lord Jesus Christ, not in the earthly things, which oftentimes become a distraction. You know, as we read in the Sermon on the Mount, you can't serve God and riches at the same time, and oftentimes we get caught up in the riches. Jesus knows of the blasphemy, the slander, the lies that are being told about these Christians, the falsehoods as their character is being slandered. Jesus knows that some of them are going to be thrown into prison. And Jesus knows that even some of his believers, some of his children, may experience death. You know, this is reality in this time period of the church. The church of Jesus Christ in that first century was persecuted mightily. Rome ruled the world, and part of any religious system had to be willing to bow the knee to Caesar. But the believers would not. Listen to the account of a man named Polycarp. One of the early church fathers. It was the 22nd of February, probably in the year A.D. 156. The venerable bishop who had fled from the city at the entreaty of his congregation was tracked down to his hiding place. He made no attempt to flee. Instead, he offered food and drink to his captors and asked permission to retire for prayer, which he did for two hours. Then as they drove into the city, the officer in charge urged him to recant. What harm can it do, he asked, to sacrifice to the emperor? Polycarp refused. On arrival, he was roughly pushed out of the carriage and brought before the proconsul in the amphitheater who addressed him. Have respect for your old age. Swear by the genius of Caesar. And again, swear and I will release you. Revile the Christ. To which Polycarp replied, Eighty in six years I have served him. He has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul persisted, Swear by the genius of Caesar. I have wild beasts. If you will not change your mind, I will throw you to them. Bid them be brought. As you despise the beasts, unless you change your mind, I will make you to be destroyed by fire. Infuriated Jews and Gentiles gathered wood for the pile. Polycarp stood at the stake, asking not to be fastened to it, and prayed, O Lord, Almighty God, the Father of thy beloved Son, Jesus Christ, through whom... We have received a knowledge of thee. I thank thee. Listen carefully to what he says. I thank thee that thou hast brought that thou hast thought me worthy this day and this hour to share the cup of thy Christ among the number of thy witnesses. The fire was kindled, but the wind drove the flames away from him and prolonged his agony, a soldier's sword 
put an end to his misery. That first century church, as it was persecuted, also experienced growth that was unknown. There was a phrase that was oftentimes used to describe the early church. The blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. And the church grew. And the church became that which impacted the world. I think often, as we think about what we're going through, that we may have gotten lazy. We may have gotten compromised. We may not be we may not be experiencing persecution because we stand for nothing to be persecuted about. I think oftentimes as Christians, brothers and sisters, we're we're so interested in being accepted. We're so interested in being like everybody else that nothing stands out about us. Our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ should be that which so revolutionizes our lives that we are different. And that difference should cause us to stand out. And remember, Jesus said it, the world hates His people. And it hates His people because we represent Jesus Christ and they hated Christ. But our lives are not willing to do that. Listen to the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I would encourage you a recent biography, probably three years old, three or four years old now, about Bonhoeffer. Excellent book. It's entitled Bonhoeffer. It would be well worth your while. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor who pastored in Germany during the rise of Adolf Hitler and during the majority of World War II. He had every opportunity to remain in the United States. He did not have to go back to Germany, uh, but he did not want to leave his people. He was a faithful shepherd, and he wanted to be with his people. Uh, he was hung uh, in, uh, April, on April 9, 1945, for his stand for Christ uh, in, in the midst of the Hitler regime. And uh, years earlier, in 1937, he had written a book entitled Cost of Discipleship. And he writes, Suffering, then, is the badge of the true Christian. The disciple is not above his master. Luther reckoned suffering among the marks of the true church. And one of the, memora- one of the uh, memorandum drawn up in preparation for the Augsburg Confession, similarly states the church as the community of those who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ, and it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In our culture today, if you make a stand against homosexuality, 
And if you speak biblically about its ungodliness, about its wrongness, what's going to happen? Well, for some reason the church has remained silent enough that now almost 20 states in our union accept homosexual marriages, same-sex marriages. The percentage, and I forget the exact number, but it horrified me, of Christians within the ages of 30 to 20 who don't see, uh, uh, people within churches in those ages, who do not see that there's anything wrong with same-sex marriages, that they don't see anything's wrong with homosexuality, are part of who's accepted this. The Scripture speaks very clearly that marriage is made up of a man and a woman. And that bond, defined in any other way, is wrong. And yet we have, you know... We've jumped on that horse, and boy, we're riding that thing to the very end. Brothers and sisters, throughout history, a common characteristic of the great civilizations that have fallen has been sexual promiscuity and homosexuality. And rather than the church be the salt and the light that it's supposed to be. Now remember, salt was a preservative. In those days, when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you're to be salt and you're to be light, salt was a preservative. You added it to meat to keep it from decaying. So the church of Jesus Christ, the believers who are followers of Jesus Christ, are to be those that keep a culture from decaying. You also add salt for flavor. And so Christians are to be those who are making the culture better because of our love for the Lord Jesus Christ and our desire to live in obedience to Him. And if we love Him, we're going to obey Him. And yet again, we go merrily down the way and seek to please the world rather than to please that one who has bought us. And the church becomes part of the problem. You know, the church led the way in the homosexual movement, the acceptance of the, the, acceptance of the homosexual movement. When I say church, I make reference to that which we would classify as the liberal church, the, 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 the non-Bible-believing church. The church led the way in terms of the, uh, just the, 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 the whole pattern of the world guiding the church as opposed to Scripture guiding the church. And I'm, I'm afraid in many ways that the reason we don't have persecution on the church in the United States is because we aren't standing up for what's true. We aren't standing up for Scripture and Scripture alone. There was an Orthodox Presbyterian pastor in San Francisco years ago who stood up against the homosexual movement. 
he had to put a barbed wire fence around his house to protect his house. He had to, he had to buy two huge dogs to protect his family. And yet, he was the only one who would go to the hospitals and visit those men and women who were dying of AIDS because of their homosexual practices. Because you know, the homosexual community throws those folks aside, casts them aside. But he was the one who went and he ministered to them, the downtrodden, the hurting. He was persecuted because of his love for Jesus. If the church of Jesus Christ is ever going to be anything within our culture today other than a casual gathering together on Sunday mornings, it has got to be because of its desire to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you think about that, again, when you look at that text, it says Jesus is eternal. It says He is victorious. He is all-knowing. He also says that the purpose of, if you remember when I read the text, the purpose of those trials is to test us, to grow us. You also see that in James chapter 1. Consider it all joy when you go through various trials. I had a tough time with that one. Why? Because Jesus is growing us. Peter makes reference to persecution as part of the purifying process. Verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1. In that text in 2 Timothy. Chapter 3 is Peter, excuse me, as Paul talked about Christians were going to be persecuted. He goes on to say, you, however... Continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Be faithful, faithful to the word. John 16, remember that text that I said, you will have tribulation. Well, listen to the entire text and please understand what our Lord has called us to do. John 16, verse 33 these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. If we stand up for Jesus, what's going to happen, guys? You will have tribulation. But the next question is, who do you love the most? Do you love Jesus or do you love the world? If you love the world, then again referring to our text in Revelation, you better be worried about that second death. Because that's the one that's eternal. Hey, first death for a believer is passing into the, you know, out of this into the presence of the Lord Jesus. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. Our king sits on the throne. Our king reigns over all of creation. 
There is not a single president, king, ruler here on this earth that has any, any power that compares to that of our great king. Why, why do we bow the knee to the world? If we love Jesus, we're going to be what he wants us to be and minister where he wants us to minister and live our lives in the manner that he would want us to live them. He is the first to the last. He is the one who experienced death and yet is alive. You remember what Thomas said when he touched Jesus? Remember good old Thomas. He was the one who wasn't there the first time that Jesus appeared. Oh, no, you know, you guys are just so emotionally upset. You know, you, you, it really wasn't him. I've got to touch him. Now, please don't mock Thomas, guys. All of us would have been there. But when Jesus appeared to Thomas, and Thomas touched his hands where those nail holes had been, and Thomas touched his side where the spear had been driven into Jesus, you remember his response? My Lord and my God. Let's pray.